0: Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. Whether you work for government or industry, if you're anywhere in the acquisition world, this podcast is for you. This episode is brought to you by IB Supply. IBSupply.com is your one stop source for timely delivery of best value products. As a preferred source of supply and an award winning Ability One provider, IBSupply.com offers access to thousands of products with compliance filters for hassle free procurement. With free shipping and next-day delivery options, IBSupply.com's quality service is unmatched. Shop IBSupply.com today. For this episode, we return to our popular series of interviews with contracting officers. Usually, we're speaking to former contracting officers, but this time, Kevin interviews Rob crando an active contracting officer at the Defense Microelectronics Activity. Listen in as Rob describes his experiences at DMEA shares his personal, what I wish industry knew about contracting officers. Okay, here we go with Rob describing how he got started as a contracting officer.
1: I actually started, um, I I got a degree uh, in, in mathematics actually, and I was kind of on in grad school on my way to uh, getting a, a master's in mathematics. And I kind of just kind of switched gears, not fully sure what I was going to do. I was going to be a, a community college professor um after switching gears and I was kind of aiming at being a high school teacher and actually did that for a little while um but while I was finishing up grad school being a high school teacher um getting my teaching credential at the same time um I came across a a, a job opportunity from someone in grad school actually she had started working for defense micro, microelectronics activity and uh and said hey um would you be interested in in you know changing jobs and I said well uh, depends, it depends, you know, what is it you do? And she explains that she was in the defense department and essentially acquiring things for the DOD. And I'm kind of a military nerd. Um, I like to, I like reading about all the different, uh, defense systems that we have, all the different airplanes, all the different ships. And, and so the idea, you know, being a high school teacher at the time, um, and getting a little bit burnt out, uh, the idea of working for pretty much anything for the Department of Defense uh, sounded interesting, so I went ahead and applied, and uh, I got the job. And uh, I haven't really looked back since.
2: So it's interesting that we we talk about a lot of people don't don't go to college. In fact, we don't know anybody yet. <laughs> Maybe there's somebody out there who's gone to college to be a contract manager or contracting officer. And we talk about that. it's a, it's a role that you you end up in because it it has a you know somebody or. Or you, it has a particular draw because of what you're doing. I mean, I I interviewed for it, but what drew me into it, yeah, was it when I started with the Air Force. It was oh, cool. I get to work on these big Air Force programs, and so it, yeah. There's that what what you do versus um, what you what you what mission you support, right? As opposed to oh yeah, well, contracts management sounds exciting. <laughs> and once you get into it, you realize yes, it's a right, little different. Right? But yeah, that's 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 kind of cool. So what was your what was your first uh, contracting officer experience like? What were you buying
1: uh, when I first started? Uh, I was. Kind of, do, we didn't have branches within our contracting division yet, and so everybody kind of did a little bit of, a little bit of everything. Um, being a small DoD organization, much smaller than you know the Systems Program Office and uh, those type of places, you know, we started off buying some operational type of contracting things. My friend and I actually, sometime after we started, we also got assigned to be um, the program coordinator for the Government Purchase Cards program. So eventually, we got to uh, an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract that we were ordering off of. And it was supporting, actually, it's a relatively unique, it's an IDIQ program. It's relatively unique in that we do uh, engineering services task orders on this IDIQ program for other agencies. So for, for, for Navy, for Air Force, for Army, uh, sometimes for NGA, some, some three-letter type of defense agencies. So which represented probably 50 to 60 percent of the workload that, that we were doing.
2: So is it is it a distributed ordering, whether they're ordering off the contract? Like if the Navy needs something off of the contract, they're coming directly to the contract and ordering it and you're just getting a heads up when they ordered something? Or do you actually have to do the task order for all of those different? No, no, that, that,
1: that's, that's a good distinction because there's a lot of other ordering vehicles out there like, uh, you know, IDIQ, like a, a Navy Seaport type contract and, and, and others. Ours is a little bit different from the standpoint of we have centralized contracting in that only uh, DMEA does the ordering process, but we provide essentially government acquisition support for uh, the areas of development that our agency has a mission to support. And so, you know, Navy can come to us or Army can come to us and say, hey, we need some microelectronics development work done. Here's our statement of work. Um, and we will actually have a, a project engineer liaison uh, who also serves as the contract analysis representative and will support that, pr- that task all the way through from the point where you are getting a you know, purchase request, a PR in, in, in the program office, all the way to the contract closeout phase. And so so they'll actually they'll help craft the the, the statement of work to be in in the common standards and ordering procedures of the IDIQ. And they'll support it all the way through the through the procurement phase, the proposal evaluation, uh, all the way to contract completion and closeout. And so we that that's what we do. We actually we we service this IDIQ and are essentially using it in large part for external customers, as we call them, or or, uh, other DOD organizations. So with these task
2: orders, are they competed amongst a bunch of other contracts or is this one big contract that's competed once every, you know, umpty ump years? Like this big contract that you're managing, is it how many contractors are on it?
1: It that's it, a good question. Um, we actually have two uh, IDIQ contracts right now. Uh, one is the predecessor contract. Um, it's the third generation so we also have, we just also just awarded the fourth generation of that same IDIQ as a continuation of the of our IDIQ program. Uh, it is a multiple award. So the source selection for the IDIQ is already complete, long since complete. Uh, the new one just, just got done. Um, and so we decide that, you know, it's a, it's a task that is acceptable and within scope of what the IDIQ program is for. And so we take that and we compete that amongst all eight awardees. Uh, of that IDIQ and each one of them then has the opportunity to bid on that task
2: okay and so and so for those of, those of you who are not familiar with this model this is the multiple award we talked about in one of the, the IDIQ podcasts that we did and so the example here is that there's a source selection that was done that those eight companies got to be part of this party basically right and then from now on they get to bid all these tasks so is it just and this is one of the things that a lot of the other content officers have questions about are they required to bid on every one of them? Or is that i mean is that when is that decision made i mean because that I, I could argue both sides of that when i was a contracting officer is it you have to bid on all of them or you can select which ones you bid on which way did you guys go
1: we have a pretty pretty high workflow i can't really speak for other IDIQ programs or so but we'll probably award you know anywhere from 50 to 100 task orders a year uh they're not required to bid oh, okay. on each one um Well, and and I think they've kind of we've considered that type of structure within our IDIQ program is, you know, do do we require them to provide a response Do we require them to bid on each one? But some of these task orders, uh, they're all they're all engineering services uh, oriented and they they have to be in order to be within scope of the IDIQ program. But they don't they don't have to provide some of these proposals are relatively large. Um, You know, some of the task orders range anywhere from you know, $200,000 to, you know, 40 or $50 million for the task. And so proposals for that uh, generally could cost you know, upwards of 50, 60, $70,000 for the contractors to prepare. And so we just eventually considered it. That's just, that's just too much waste to ask each of the awardees to spend just to provide a proposal to a solicited task
2: that that is awesome because that that's one of the one of the challenges people are are wondering about and it kind of backs up the the, industry's perspective is the same is it it, it don't please let me bid on stuff that i don't have a chance to really win because out of the eight companies say three of them are really good at something and the other ones are okay well they know who each other are they're researching each other so yeah you you don't want plus you got to evaluate them which that you know creates even more work for people so what's the most interesting thing you bought as a contracting officer
1: Okay, so there's several interesting things, um, but probably one of the ones that that sticks out in my mind is um, we did some engineering services uh, development uh, across a span of task orders where we were developing these pods that would go underneath the wings or underneath the hull of aircraft that would provide surveillance data and computing um, with these optics um, and it really started to it, like it started off with with one purpose. And then it, it started to have more and more applications for, for a variety of things. The original purpose essentially was IED detection. And essentially what it would do is it would just scan the ground and it would note, you know, thermal signatures and it would re- kind of report that back tracking all of those. So, you know, if it was in, you know, a deployed country, for example, to be to make it generic uh, it would it would be scanning the ground and I'll say along a highway if a car or or a person stopped and stayed the, on the side of the road for a little bit and then got in the car and kept, kept going then essentially it would flag that as a hotspot for IED detection and uh, so that was a that was a, that was a really interesting uh, task it further developed into even more applications, into an even non deployed type of thing more like uh, you know homeland and and border protection type of applications. Um, but this also, this one actually kind of stuck out to me a little bit more because a, a friend of, from mine of high, from high school, uh, actually died from an IED explosion. And so, and this was actually around the time that we were starting to do some of that development. And so this test kind of hit home for me as, Hey, here's some real tangible, uh, warfighter impact that, you know, if, you know, shoot, if only we had had this a little, little bit earlier, you know, we could, we could have done it even, even more. But uh, but I know for for you know that was a friend from high school. There are some people who this would probably hit home for quite a bit more. Uh, but that's the kind of development that, that that we're doing. And the fun part about that was that some of those tasks would actually develop a prototype, and they would actually take the prototype. And so this is not, this is not a it's, it's, isn't even like a first article production type of thing or first article testing. This is a, literally the, the 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 unit was a prototype. They take it over, they would install it on one of their planes, and they go fly around in a in, in battlefield or the deployed areas and test this thing out and then bring it back and then analyze the data like, okay, so so what do we learn from this and how can we develop this thing even further? That that's probably one of the that, things that is, that that is that's kind of cool.
2: An example of how you know work is a work is a social activity, right? Well it's also personal, particularly when you've worked at a base for a while or if you worked on a mission, whether it's you know civilian or otherwise, when you really start to see the impact of what you're buying, to really be mm-hmm. able to relate what, what you bought, what does it actually do? And that's the reason I bring that up is that oftentimes we're sprinting so fast to get the work done, to get the, the business, I get the contract awarded, et cetera, that sometimes we lose track of, well, what, what, what is the overall mission that we're supporting? And when you get that behind what you're trying to do, it's amazing how much perspective you get on some of the other pieces that get in the way of, of, you know, getting like communication, for example, and taking the time to actually
1: talk to, to the
2: user talk to industry talk to all the people to make sure you're buying the right stuff
1: usually the customers that, that we're dealing with are literally um weapons system program offices and so i could kind of continue a little bit and saying you know like we've done you know radar improvements for the b1 we've done radar improvements for the b2 um We've even stuff done stuff for for F thirty five because even though F thirty five is a is a relatively new aircraft to the field, you know it's been in. I mean, you and Paul being on the weapons system program offices, you know, directly, you guys can attest they've they started developing the F thirty five a long time ago, and, and in the, and in that time, and in that time that, uh, you know, from from drawing to paper to prototype to now that we're kind of in a kind of a production phase. Um, you know, some of the parts that they had planned for and designed to be on the F-35 have already gone obsolete given this, the pace of technology development. And so some of those, you know, the cards or radars or, you know, whatever, they're, um, they, they, need, they need replacements. They need new, um, and sometimes it's not even upgrades. Sometimes they just need update for new technology and, and a, a new small production line for, for that and, you know, production lines in DOD tend to be significantly different than those type of production lines in the commercial sector.
2: That's just such a great example of why you would use an IDIQ contract, because you don't know what's going to go obsolete next. It, you may need some engineering services to replace this part in the F-35, which you're right. It sounds kind of silly to be like, why are we replacing this stuff? At the plane's barely even operational. So an IDIQ is <laughs> like, you don't know what you're going to need, but when we need it and and, and you're doing it as, as with the most amount of competition you can, which is the multiple award, and you recompete that, and, and yeah, that's, a, that's its own project, <laughs> recompeting a, a multi-award source selection, which we'll leave that for another day. Right. What is the one thing that you wish industry knew about government contracting from your perspective? What does it jump out that you say, well, if they knew this, they would understand. If they knew X, they'd understand why.
1: that's a, that's a very good question um there's a lot of things that i wish that the uh, contractors knew or contractors had and and even even those contractors that have been involved in the industry for in this particular aspect of the industry for a long time is uh just the just the idea of uh clause prescriptions um congress seems to be coming out with new clauses almost every day <laughs> it, it, at least in my perspective that, you know, that literally it comes out and, it's, and it becomes either uh, um, uh, what they call a clause deviation, meaning that it's been mandated by someone at, at the high up and hasn't yet been put in the FAR or the DFARs, or it gets put, put in the FAR in the DFARs, and, and, it's a, and it's a major change. It's a major shift, and it's prescribed, and usually the clause for prescription says something along the lines of, you know, this clause shall be put in all solicitations and contracts, period. And so I have this regulation that is mandating that I add this clause that has a relatively large impact uh, to the to the contractor, not necessarily to the contract. Um, and I have to put those in there and then we get the, the feedback from industry like, hey, how, you know, why are we doing this? Can we define it this way? You know, and and there's all the, tends to come up with all these with all these questions and all these uh, kind of fighting back about it. And and as a contracting officer, I'm looking at the, looking at the far and the they are saying, you know, you know, contract now officers shall include this clause in the contract period or in all solicitations and contracts. And yet this contractor is fighting back against this clause. And I'm kind of stuck in the middle being like, I can't not put this clause in here because I'm literally being told from, from above, to put this con this clause in here. But, at the, but I understand your opinion. And, but you know, there's nothing that I can do. And so, and then I'm not, not sure that all of industry necessarily kind of understands that where you have this level of, I guess you could call it bureaucracy, you know, as positive or as negative of that, you know, uh, word resonates with you. But that I literally have no control over or, or only have so much control as to, you know, risk my own neck by including or not including um, that in, in the contract, regardless of how silly or ridiculous or or uh, kind of overbearing maybe that it might be. There's a real lack of understanding from
2: that the DO, at their high levels, right, they just put a clause in there and they just stick it in there. And we, at the contract level, are trying to figure it out. So there's a lack of understanding of what that creates. And and I think that right. it, this is a really good time for people to understand, for industry and, and, for that matter, contracting officers, to be able to say, this is the pushback I'm getting. In fact, in this podcast, this is a great medium to do that. This is the pushback I'm getting from industry. Here's a problem it creates. Push that up the chain because you're hearing it from contracting officers. Also, industry saying the same thing. "If This clause is put in here. It's not helping us at all. It's you know creating costs and those kind of things, or it's, or or it's creating you know some kind of delay in the process. And I think that 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 conversation, those it, it, it at the ground level actually have you know the credibility. Like when, when you say I can't fix this clause, contractor is going to charge us an extra you know five thousand dollars a year because of what it creates for his company on this cost type contract. We the taxpayer are paying for that. You have actual credibility to say that. Whereas you know Congress is like, oh yeah, put this in. It sounds good. But they don't they don't know how much it costs because nobody's telling them, and so that's I think for for both sides to bring that up is really yeah. good. So as as a way of wrapping us up here, what do you see as the biggest challenge for the for the government market for the government contractor industry, whether you know whether whether on your side or or on the industry side, what do you see as a big challenge coming up?
1: It seems like pretty much since I've started, um, there have been continuing resolutions and um, just a lot of budgetary type of delays, and what that ends up being is um, a lot of program offices don't yet know if they can, you know, they, they, they know that they need a certain solution. They know they need this task on, on contract, but they don't yet know if they're going to be able to pay for it. And so uh, what we've ended up with, and to just, so just a little side side uh, tangent here, uh, the government pays for different things with different kinds of funds. And typically uh, the kind of funding that we're using often ends up being uh, what's called R and D funding, R and D funding, according to federal appropriation law, has to be obligated, has to be used, put on contract uh, within two years of its appropriation. Now, uh, uh, on top of that, typically program offices or major weapons system branches uh, tend to say, we want you to obligate 80% of your R&D dollars just purely from like a risk management standpoint of making sure that they're properly using all their money, that they want them to obligate 80% of their R&D dollars within the first year of that two-year period. Now, throw continuing resolutions on top of that, and now you have, you know, n- only enough budget to continue specific uh, specific contracts or, you know, or or not having any new starts. And so you get your budget, to, you, g- you get your money for the new year, you know, four to five months sometimes after the new budget was supposed to be released. And so now that year that you originally had to obligate your R&D dollars now you only have 7 or 8 months to do still 80% of it and they don't seem to be you know relinquishing on the 80% rule, if, if, if you will, here. And so that even further kind of exacerbates this issue of sometimes we don't necessarily see a requirement coming or we don't know whether or not we can afford that requirement. We don't want contractors to have to generate a proposal just for the, you know, the thought or the chance that we might get some funding towards the, the end of the year to, to pay for. Because if we don't, then they're out a whole <laughs> bunch of money. We don't get our task and everybody's unhappy. Is there any, any other thing out there that uh, any other one thing that you can
2: think of Absolutely. that you wish people knew?
1: You know, the contracting officer's job is, is, is relatively difficult from the standpoint of you're, you know, you're the business advisor in between multiple parties of which many often do not agree. Um, and there's so many, you know, there's the federal acquisition regulations, there's the federal management or financial management regulations. There's, you know, the contractor's terms and conditions. There's the, the, the requirements coming from the, from the government side. And so what happens to, you know, a lot of contract officers kind of get shoved into this area where uh, where we end up either being some sort of police officer in the acquisition, you know, when we find ourselves saying, you know, like, you can't do that. Or, you know, like, I'm not doing that. Um, and, and that's pretty much from essentially trying to manage so many different constraints and, you know, must haves. And, I, you know, I think both, you know, industry could, you know it helps for them to kind of be understanding of that role. Uh, but also it's, it's also good for the, for the contract officers to understand that. I mean, it and this is, you know, this is my commentary out there, but you know, you have to be solution minded. You have to be very comfortable with, you know, what things can you do and when things can't you do and to be able to kind of differentiate the idea, the, the difference between, you know, Hey, that's a really bad idea. And Hey, that's a, that's, <laughs> that's illegal. A you quote. can't do that. Um, and to try to be, constantly be searching for, constantly be searching for the thing that you can do. And, you know, as a business advisor, I'm I'm telling people, hey, you know, we can do it that way. Um, But I'm telling you, here are the risks of A, B, and C. And sometimes the risks being A, B, and C dictate that you should go back and, you know, revise the requirement, you know, change things up a little bit, come at it from a different approach. And sometimes it's just like, well, you know, that you're right, that's a risk. Um, And we're just going to have to accept the risk in this particular case, because we don't either a we don't have another you know many other options or you know this thing just needs to to move forward. Not very often have I gotten a requirement from someone and and I'm looking at it and I'm just thinking like I, you know we can't we can't buy this we can't do it. Um, but more often it's like you know hey either you know maybe this isn't in scope for the IDIQ contract or. You know, hey, we can do it, but you know, I would restructure it this way uh, to to kind of mitigate some of our risk. And, and you're bringing up these ideas, and it, it may be a bad idea. Maybe you know, hey, we can mitigate some of the risk this way, but sometimes you still kind of have to move forward. And um, so, I my advice to kind of contract officers and then kind of the contracts people on, on on the other side is just to be flexible um, with what with what, you know, management and the the requiring activities telling, telling you to do, uh, with the FAR and the DFAR is telling you what to do, make sure you're abiding by, you know, the shells and everything like that. But then also being very comfortable with that line, you know, when does it go from gray area to, you know, know, this might have a bad idea this has risks to the, into the black of, you know, I can't do that anymore. Um, and to being more comfortable with exactly where that line is can help to make decisions more quickly and to and to mitigate risk, and that's that's both industry and and the and the government side. I love that quote. If it
2: may just really be a bad idea, but it also may be illegal. <laughs> and yeah, there's there, that's a great example of a gray area. You know, there there are, there are <laughs> things that are not necessarily a good idea, but they're still legal, and you learn from those. And then there are ones like, yeah, you just can't do that. Funny enough, I think there's a there's the second group that you just can't do that list isn't as long as we think sometimes, but because of people have gotten beat over the head when they do things wrong we kind of feel like everything that sounds like a bad idea is the same thing as don't ever try that again right. <laughs> even if the industry's changed
1: yeah the the the, the, the far and the far and the de far seem to be totally peppered with um certain clauses or certain requirements and you're reading it and you're just thinking to yourself wow somebody really screwed up because this is directed towards <laughs> one specific Thou shalt very good not. point. <laughs> Well, thank you,
2: Robert. I appreciate your time. This is a really good discussion. And uh, I hope to thank you for being a podcast listener and we will see you around.
0: All right. That's it for this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Thanks to Robert Crandall for joining us today. And special thanks to our sponsor, IB Supply, for making this possible. As always, if you have questions, comments or complaints, send me an email at paul at ContractingOfficerPodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.